The scripture lesson today is from Revelation chapter 21, beginning at verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, See, the home of God is among mortals. God will dwell with them as their God, and they will be God's people, and God will be with them. God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Mourning and crying and pain will be no more, for the first things have passed away. And the one who was seated on the throne said, See, I am making all things new. And he said, Write this, for these words are trustworthy and true. Then he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give water as a gift from the spring of the water of life. Those who conquer will inherit these things, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. Revelation paints a picture of the future, and the dramatic picture seems confusing and even mind-boggling until you begin to look at the present. So go with me to first century Christianity. Pretend you are darting down the narrow, dusty streets of Ephesus before the sun rises early on a Sunday morning. You duck into a small doorway of a tiny little house and you find there a group of friends. One is a slave who unloads ships in the harbor. Another owns a small produce stall selling olives and pomegranates in the market. One is a wealthy landowner. After singing some songs and sharing prayer concerns, someone opens up a letter written by John. You remember John because he visited your church and the other six churches in the surrounding cities before he fled on a boat to the island of Patmos. You hear John say that he dreams of the day when the sea will no longer be there. And you know what he means. It's the sea that separates him physically from you, and you ache to see him again. But today, a letter will have to be enough. Afterwards, you leave quickly to make it to your job, and as you dart out the door, you carefully look over your shoulder to see if anyone is watching you. You're afraid of persecution for practicing a religion not sanctioned by the government. You're afraid of the political violence And now you hurry to your own job, which is back-breaking labor. And as the sun begins to set, you return to this same tiny house for evening worship, breaking bread and singing again to finish the day of worship. New Testament scholar Barbara Rossing reminds us that the first century Christians, they had to squeeze in worship before and after the normal workday because Sunday was the dominant culture's Monday. The early Christians were practicing an alternative reality to the city in which they found themselves living. And if you and I were to go to Ephesus today, we would not be able to find any archeological evidence of these first churches. They had no sanctuaries. They had no temples, not even a gymnasium. It is to this fledgling group of folks 
that John writes a vision about what God sees for their future as a people of faith. To these marginalized folks, John sends a hopeful image of the future. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, and the sea was no more, and I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. And I heard a voice saying, See, the home of God is among mortals. God will dwell with them as their God, and they will be God's people. God will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will be no more death or crying or pain. As a fearful and powerless person on the streets of first century Ephesus, this vision from God offered a startling picture of transformation of this city. First, the hopeful image that John offers, well, it's not an escape that would lift them out of the dusty, crowded, dangerous city in which they live. Instead, God offers them a renewed city, a holy city, a crowded community. Sometimes when folks picture this image of holiness, of communing with God, they imagine hiking up on a mountaintop and sitting by a peaceful lake in solitude, or strolling out on a scenic beach at sunset to relax, or strolling through a lush meadow of wildflowers in the countryside. But in John's letter, in the Revelation, this image of hope is painted not in a garden, not in the Garden of Eden, but in a dazzling city, a holy city, God amongst the crowd of people, the divine goodness of God unfolding in the streets of their daily lives. Now, if we were hoping that God would somehow scoop us up and transport us up to heaven, then John offers an entirely different picture. Here on the final pages of the letter in Revelation 21, we read what Professor Rossing calls a reverse rapture. Not people ascending to heaven, but God descending to earth. What John writes to these city churches to give them hope is the startling image of God coming down from heaven to earth. The holy city descending from heaven. If there are heavenly escalators... They are all going down, not up. God comes to make a home among mortals in the city, to dwell with them, to transform their ordinary back-breaking workaday lives and the system that keeps them hopeless into a kind of heaven on earth. John of Patmos encourages these early Christians, a ragtag group of refugees and slaves and wealthy Jews and formerly pagan Gentiles to create a brand new future. And I can't help, I can't help but wonder if they felt inadequate for the task. If they, if they heard John's letter and shook their heads in disbelief, we're just one small church. What can one single church, what can one single person really do? We are no match for the devastation of a fractured and corrupt city. 
Albert Rios is a living poet, and he wrote a poem just a few years ago. It's called A House Called Tomorrow. And I think his poem captures this human fear that we just might not be up to the task of transforming the world. And I think it also conveys the audacious hope that we hear in the book of Revelation. Here are just a few lines from this poem called A House Called Tomorrow. The bad do not win, not finally, no matter how loud they are. We simply would not be here if that were so. You are made fundamentally from the good. With this knowledge, you never march alone. You are the breaking news of the century. You are the good who has come forward. What I hear from John of Patmos saying to these early Christians in those little house churches in the back alleyways of Ephesus is this. You, you never march alone. You are the good that has come forward. I hear God saying in this vision that we, as human beings, can partner with God to build tomorrow. One scholar says that the holy city from heaven, it's like God's gift to us, but somehow the gift becomes an assignment. This fledgling group of Christians did go on to challenge the status quo of the ancient cities and become a worldwide movement of love and grace called Christianity. And we, we are not a perfect religion. The history of Christianity is filled with chapters we'd love to rewrite. The Crusades, anti-Semitism, slavery, to name but a few. And at the same time, for millions of people, for thousands of years, we have been a source of healing and grace and inspiration to love and to use our energy collectively to build tomorrows more faithful than the past. Together, we have been a voice of freedom and hope and new life, insisting with our breath and our power that God dwells here on the earth when we love one another. And so, Fast forward with me from the first century of Christianity in Ephesus and travel 1,800 years forward in time. And now we stand a few miles from the Missouri River on a battlefield that has been returned to cornfields. Upon the soil where we now stand, the blood of the Civil War flowed. Upon the soil where we now stand, soldiers marched out their training drills for World War I, and most of them did not come home. It is the year 1919, and women in this land do not yet have the right to vote. Lynchings still happen in broad daylight in front of hundreds of people in town squares across this country. A man named Frank Bowen arrives with his wife Mary to serve as missionaries in Kansas City. That's right missionaries, Christians 
in 1919 were sending missionaries not just to China and Africa to save souls, but also to cities like Kansas City. The Bowens started more than 20 churches in Kansas City, and one of them was ours. The Warnell Farm was being converted to a housing development by J.C. Nichols. Many hailed him as visionary in the way he designed neighborhoods. Many were blind to the exclusivism of the deed restrictions. This would be a neighborhood without Jewish people or black people, and no Catholic church would be inside this particular development. It was new, but perhaps not the new heaven and the new earth envisioned by God where all people would dwell together in one holy city. But it would open the doorway to a new vision. Here, during World War II, a flag hung in the rotunda with a star for every man and woman sent to war from the congregation. 396 stars. By war's end, 10 of those stars were gold, signifying those who had paid the ultimate price. Here, the bells rang for 45 minutes when the war was over. Here, a Sunday school class began called 50-50, where women and men would hold equal leadership roles long before that kind of thing was politically correct. Here, a young single woman was sent to China on a boat as a missionary. Here, a Catholic bishop would meet the leader of the worldwide Protestant movement. Here, 519 young men and women would earn the highest rank in scouting, Eagle Scout. Here, millions of dollars would be raised and sent to empower the poor both locally and internationally. Here, radical new books of theology would be read that would cause some of the faithful to quake. Here, the saints were laid to rest and the children blessed and baptized. Here, hands and hearts were poured out to build schools and hospitals and churches and retirement homes. Here, couples would fall in love in the singles group and start their own families. Here, an African-American would be the baby Jesus at the annual Christmas Eve service and an elderly African-American woman would become a beloved soloist in the chancel choir. Here, a man would marry a man. Here, a woman would become senior minister. Here, new tomorrows would be built, not just by mortals, but by God. And now fast forward a hundred years a global pandemic halted our planned centennial in its tracks. Concerts and lectures and parties all canceled. We went home and watched church alone. We did what was unthinkable a hundred years ago. And now we dare launch the next 100. None of us knows what the next 100 years will hold. In the year 2121, will people come to church in flying saucers? Will driverless cars drop us off at the front door? Will churches meet virtually, gathering folks from many cities and nations? Will there still be picnics on the back lawn with grilled veggie burgers? 
None of us knows. Our nation sits on the precipice of racial tension, political polarization, environmental disaster. We do not know what will come next. God's vision is not yet fully realized here on earth. We are not yet the new heaven and the new earth that John dreamed about in the book of Revelation. God's vision is to dwell with the human community and eliminate pain and crying, to bring us together with each other so that we are a holy city, a community of people who reveal God's eternal love and grace. Is that a tomorrow we can sign up to build? What we are asked to build is more than brick and mortar, more than an energy-efficient heating and air conditioning system, more than windows that don't leak heat, more than a door that can be found by newcomers. We are asked to build a holy city. And in God's holy city, there is no temple. A temple is a place where God and people meet a place of divine encounter. But when this finally happens, we will no longer need temples or churches, for God's love will be in the streets and in our hearts. My friend Cheryl has three sons. She says that her job is to work herself out of a job. She raised her sons so that they would eventually not need her. They can now all three tie their own shoes manage their own household budgets, make good moral decisions, love their own families, and be true to the image of God within their own souls. Her job is to no longer be needed. And that is the job of the church, to create a new heaven and a new earth, a place where God's light and love and justice and grace and goodness is so very evident in our communities and our cities that we don't need the church anymore. We are not yet there. We still need to build tomorrow. The poem, A House Called Tomorrow, ends with these words, and I think they are the perfect words for you and me as we now launch the next 100. We can make a house called tomorrow. What we bring finally into the new day every day is ourselves. And that's all we need to start. And that's everything we require to keep going. Look back, only for as long as you must, and then go forward into the history that you will make.